welcome to Zonan Canada. I'm your host, Jesse Betteridge. Today on the show, we're talking about The Bush Baby, uh, an anime from the World Masterpiece Theatre series, which was dubbed and aired exclusively on TVO and Access Alberta back in 1993. Uh, and for the longest time, that dub was considered lost forever. Um, not so much as a clip or cast list existed. But that changed earlier this year when the entire thing was uploaded online and made available. Uh, joining me on the show today to discuss the series is the hero who kept this dub perfectly preserved and archived for years and finally made it accessible again uh, this past Canada Day. Uh, her name is Rania. Rania, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. And also joining us uh, to discuss the series is Anime News Network columnist, and narrator for the English dub of Banania, now on home video from Discotech, it's the marvelous Mike Tool. Mike, thanks for coming on the show again. Thank you very much for having me on the show, and uh, let me reiterate uh, that, R Rania, you are a hero for saving the Bush Baby dub. Not uh, only saving you, it, but sharing you. it with us all. It's a yeah. wonderful gift. It's, it's worth emphasizing that um, this series has never been officially released uh, or even fully fan-subbed before. Um, and the newly recovered dub is the only full English translation that exists. On top of that, the book it was based off of is long out of print, and uh, there was mm -hmm. also a movie based on it. Oh, is there? Yep, yep, a 60s MGM joint. 1969 yeah. uh, mm -hmm. by MGM. Um, that has not seen any kind of release since it was put out on VHS in 1993. Um, so yep. in a sense, Ronnie has not only recovered the dub, but this is actually the only version of the <laughs> baby story that's available for English speakers at all right now. Um, so just for context, this uh, this episode is part of my series of retrospectives on anime that has a, that have a unique cultural relevance to Canada. Previously, I focused these episodes on shows that had a unique cultural impact, like Sailor Moon or Albator, uh, but I'm expanding a little in this case for shows that have had a that had a specific cultural link or connection to Canada. And uh, some background on it: The Bush Baby uh, is an anime produced by Nippon Animation in 1992. It's an adaptation of the 1965 novel The Bush Babies uh, by Canadian author William Stevenson. Most of his other work was nonfiction and focused on like different political conflicts. But The Bush Babies was his one and only children's novel. Uh, he and his family had lived in Kenya for a number of years before the country gained independence from the British Empire in 1964. Um, his daughter, Jackie, had a pet bush baby, and he wrote this story uh, as an adventure featuring them, and then it got adapted into an anime. I, I think actually the first thing we might need to clarify is, what is a bush baby? Can, can someone explain bush babies? Uh, I don't really know how to describe it. It's just like a little rodent thing. I don't... <laughs> I, think I think they're primates. Are uh, they? If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I did not yeah, I didn't. Uh, I must confess, I didn't do the reading on yeah, the uh, <laughs> on the biology of the of the bush baby itself. Um, I I just read the book and watched the cartoon. They're, they're nocturnal and they get high mm -hmm. when they lick mint. Um, I think those are mm -hmm. two, those are two pretty important traits. Wait, is that actually true, or is that just relating to that one episode? Um, I was going to say, do yeah. they, is, there, is, is there an actual narcotic effect when they when they eat mint? Because that's like, wow, that. Uh, Jackie's Bush Baby is stoned for a significant amount of the story, if that's the case. <laughs> uh, you know what? I may have been embellishing there a little bit. I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> They're actually kind of horrifying looking, like in actual pictures of them, I have to say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, Rania, of the three of us, you're the only one who has like a real background with the series and that you, you watched it uh, long ago. Can, can you give us a little bit of uh, of just a, the background of how you discovered it and how you wound up with this whole Thing archived. Yeah, sure. So when I was about three years old in 96, um, my brother and I used to watch it on Access Network. 
uh, in Alberta. And we enjoyed watching it so much that my parents decided to tape every episode for us. And so it would air daily. And if they missed an episode, they would either wait for it to come around again, like the next year, or it was also recorded. Or it was also airing on weekends at a different part in the series. So they would just tape that episode if they wanted. And uh, yeah, they got around to getting every episode. Um, they taped them from Rabbit Ears. I don't know if any of the listener, listeners even know what Rabbit Ears are, but uh, <laughs> that was a thing back in the day. <laughs> it's the it's the best. It's one of the best ways to get TV now if you're in the right area. Better quality yeah. cable. Yeah, right. it's, <laughs> com- it's completely uncompressed high definition. See, yeah. th- to me, that is doubly impressive because I saw the riffs on YouTube and I just assumed that the analog noise was just old VHS artifacting. It didn't even occur to me that there was also broadcast artifacting in there. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. So then several years later, we made a DVD copy for my cousins who ended up losing it. And then our converter ended up frying in a freak uh, thunderstorm, <laughs> which, and then we just never got around to replacing it. And then I found out online years later that there's huge demand for it. And I was like, well, I guess I better get on this because this show's amazing and I want other people to experience it. So mm. yeah, I got to, I found a independent, VHS to DVD converter business dude in Calgary and uh, got him to copy it over and then I put it all on YouTube. So I was just going to ask where you were located in Canada. So you're you're in or in proximity to Calgary? I'm in because Calgary. Yeah. I, I'm just I, I am absolutely certain that uh, Dave Merrill, who lives in Toronto and has appeared on this podcast, also lost a DVD recorder in a freak thunderstorm. I'm kind of wondering. It was the I same wonder, one. Yeah. yeah, maybe it was the same storm. Claim the yeah. water victims. <laughs> Nature yeah. is just against people preserving classic anime and classic anime dubs, I guess. The odds mm-hmm. are always going to be against Oh, you. it's it's always <laughs> a fight. That's why this work is so important. Yeah. 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 And uh, if your people aren't familiar with TVO and Access Alberta, because I assume there's probably going to be some non-Canadians listening to it. In Canada, we have our national public broadcaster, CBC and Radio Canada, but we also have some provincial, um, edu- they're called educational broadcasters. Uh, in the, the biggest one is TVO, TV Ontario. Uh, in mm-hmm. Ontario, Access Alberta actually does not exist anymore, from my understanding. It's, it was yeah, pri- I don't think it's around it anymore. Was private, it was privatized wow. in the 1990s. Um, I think they still carry that designation of being an educational broadcaster, but they are no longer privately owned. Uh, and then there's also Knowledge Network in British Columbia. In fact, I think TVO and Knowledge Network are now the only two that we have left. And they all air children's programming. Um, but yeah, the the Bush Baby and some other anime show has, have shown up on TVO in Access Alberta. Another major one was um, Fables of the Green Forest was on TVO. I think it might have been on Access Alberta as well. I know that one was on Knowledge Network. But uh, it, it was a, an area where a lot of um, a lot of obscure dubs showed up. And this was the only place on earth where this um where this bush baby dub showed up and it was co-produced by tv ontario uh my my friend jonathan andrade who runs i miss bionics had been looking into it for a while he said he contacted tvo and they denied that they ever had any involvement or knew what this show was um but the the ending credits on the show say otherwise so yeah. <laughs> there's a there's some deep dives we could do here but mike what what is your interest uh in this series well, my interest in the series is the curious fact that there are there's kind of a plurality of these world masterpiece theater shows that have never been dubbed in English, despite being based on source material that is originally in the English language. And you have to understand that uh, world masterpiece theater casts a very long shadow uh, in, in, in Japan's animation pantheon. It's where Takahata and Miyazaki really developed their skills and where the modern layout system for animation was developed on the show Heidi. So so world masterpiece theater shows in general are very important. And in a number of cases, uh, and, and certainly in the case of the Bush Babies, uh, the world masterpiece theater version 
is the most popular and well-known version in the world. Uh, I, I don't think it would be uh, hyperbole to say that. So it's important to to try and recover this. Um, but there are a lot of other shows that they've done, like you know, Lucy of the Southern Rainbow CD. It's like a lot of these uh, these shows that are based on these old, not particularly well-known uh, Western children's books that have kind of become the definitive versions of the stories, despite in in some aspects uh, changing them considerably. So when when I discovered that not only was there a, a dub of uh, of the Bush Babies, but it it was more or less complete, that got me very excited uh, because uh, you know pr- preserving this stuff is important. Mm-hmm. And the, I mean the quality is very good on those recordings as well. Yeah, yeah. considering it was rabbit ears, it's not too bad. <laughs> There's a couple mm-hmm. staticky issues here and there, yeah. but like it's it's pretty pretty solid for the most part. I think my favorite thing in terms of just uh, TV quirks about watching these episodes is the fact that uh, for a number of episodes, the ending bumper, which ordinarily uh, urges you to watch the polka dot door, uh, <laughs> yeah. in- inc- incorrectly identifies the main character as Kim. I so. That has always bothered me, and I don't <laughs> yeah. know who Kim is, but... Yeah, I, I don't know who Kim is or who or why she has a bush baby, but uh, that's 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 a really interesting, man. <laughs> Too many bush babies running around. Not not quite the ecological disaster that Rascal the Raccoon caused in uh, in Japan with uh, people bringing all those raccoons in. But I don't. I, actually, I don't think bush babies caught on quite the same way because I think as uh, as Rania pointed out, they're not as cute in real life. Yeah, as they, they're, <laughs> they're not as show. cute in real life, and they're probably harder to import. Uh, rac- yeah. <laughs> it's not it's not hard to get your hands on raccoons. So also, I I wanted to point out that uh, the show was directed by Takayoshi Suzuki. He worked on other mm-hmm. uh, World Masterpiece Theater titles. Um, oh, my, mostly, yes. He's very experienced. Yeah. 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 Uh, Tom Sawyer, Daddy Longlegs, Mayonette. Um, he also directed Grander Musashi and Legend of the Condor Hero. Oh, baby. Grander Musashi is a show about fishing lures. Good fishing lures. Evil fishing lures. <laughs> I also noticed that you know, I don't know what an executive director is. Uh, or what that is supposed to be in the the pantheon of uh, of Japanese anime staff, but mm-hmm. he was executive director on another anime that had a long lost dub, uh, Tonde Burin, also known as Super Pig. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, which uh, yeah. Saban dubbed back in the late nineties. It was, but they, it was dubbed entirely in English. Um, yeah, but I, it was, I've got that dub. It's a good one. Oh, you actually have the the. I, I was under the belief that the only version of the English dub out there was the Russian dubbed version, which is where you could hear the English version, but Russian people are speaking over it. Oh no, no, I have some episodes of an English version. Uh, it may not be a Saban English version. I, the one I have sounds like it may have been dubbed uh, in a English speaking territory in Asia, like Hong Kong or Malaysia. It's got that uh, that style to it, but uh, it's it's uh, it's com- you know it's complete episodes and it's very cute. It's a it's a really neat show actually. Um, as to your question about supervising director, that is someone who in some shows will sit kind of above the day-to-day director. A good example of that. Executive director, which I guess is, yeah. I guess it's probably the same thing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's someone who their job is to get the talent together, not necessarily to supervise the project as a whole. A good example would be Shinichiro Watanabe when he did Space Dandy. He was not he wasn't the you know the serious director that was Shingo Natsume, but he was the executive director of the project. So it's that kind of role. So I guess we'll we'll start by talking about the series itself. Um, we'll we'll go into some spoilers here. Uh, I won't get too in depth. I'm impressed with how many of the story points from the novel it hit, this, despite being kind of a different work in some ways. Yeah, I I mean some some parts are lifted straight out of the book pretty much. Mm-hmm. Uh, that actually made made it a bit of a breezy read for me, but there are some a few significant differences. Um anyway, the series is set in 1964, which I think means it's one of the more later set uh world masterpiece theaters. I think there are some set in the 
the mid 20th century. But yeah, and anyway, it takes place shortly after Kenya gained its independence from Britain and became a republic. Uh, the main character is Jackie Rhodes. She's a 13 year old British girl uh, who was born in uh, Mount Kil- the Mount Kilimanjaro area of Kenya. Uh, lives there with her family. Uh, her father, Arthur Rhodes, uh, also goes by the nickname Trapper Rhodes. I don't know if they use that in the the series. No, was, they do yeah. not. Okay, but it was in the it was in the book. Um, yeah. He's a gamekeeper at a wildlife wildlife preservation. Uh, at the beginning of the series, she adopts an injured bush baby, which she names Murphy. Um, and we follow her as she nurses it back to health. Uh, much of the focus in that first half is mainly on her day-to-day life, going to school, just the kind type of experiences you see with other uh, white children living in Kenya at the time, uh, the, with the political changes in Kenya bubbling in the background. Most of the first half focuses on, uh, in terms of plot, uh, when, you know, like when they get around to that, focuses on Jackie and her friends thwarting a group of poachers, uh, killing animals in the preserve. Um, a lot of the time was also used to build up the character of Professor Crankshaw, although it sounds, mm-hmm. I, I think as, as we've discussed a little before, it sounds more, more like they're saying Crenshaw in the It's Crenshaw. <laughs> Cren- yeah. Uh, in the yeah. Japanese version and in the book, it is Crankshaw, so. We'll just use those interchangeably, I guess. Uh, he's a local archaeologist who pilots a biplane, uh, which he calls the Mother Goose. Uh, and he's sort of a grandfatherly figure to, to Jackie and a close friend of their family. Um, so it's worth noting this series is 40 episodes long, which is about the minimum length that I think any World Masterpiece Theater series uh, comes at. They're usually, they're never less than three core, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And mm-hmm. everything up until this point that I've described is not in the book at all. Um, most of the characters, uh, apart from her family... Um, uh, apart from Jackie's, Jackie, her family, Crankshaw, and the uh, the family servant Tenbo, um, they are not in the book. They are all created uh, for the series specifically. I, there's not there doesn't seem to be a lot of writing about the background and production of this series at all. World masterpiece theater titles usually focus on carefully researched international locations. Um, I get the distinct impression, and I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but it it seems that. Um, they chose Af- they chose to do this story in particular, despite it being a very obscure story, because Africa was an area that they hadn't really covered in any other World Masterpiece Theater series. Mm-hmm. They're usually they're you know they're typically in Europe or in um, in parts of the United States or in Canada. Uh, yep. they, I think they wanted an opportunity to research and explore that part of the world, and um, I'm not sure if they went to Kenya. It's, it might be worth noting that in 1991, when they were producing this series, it marked a, a bit of a decline of political unrest in that country at that time. Um, mm-hmm. But it definitely feel it feels like they visited a wildlife preserve, and they tried to, and they, they you know they did a lot of research, and I think they, it feels like they used this first half to kind of show their work. And, yeah. um, mm-hmm. and and to show everything they learned and all the intricacies of how how they operate or how again how poachers would exploit something like that and and yeah. and hunt animals it that that seems to be kind of the um, the basis of that first half of the series is kind of what I took away from it. Hmm. Well, Takahata was the one who established the, uh, the their, their whole process of exhaustively researching uh, locales before making their shows. I don't know how much they were doing that by uh, by the early '90s. Um, World Masterpiece Theater as a franchise, you know, was kind of on a on a down slope. That was during their home foods. Uh, era when they actually needed to have a title sponsor and so so like uh, well, this this kind of world mass theaters always had a, a title sponsor going back to the beginning wasn't it it started with calpus it, it? it started with calpus but yeah. they had a long period where they were actually directly produced uh, by zuyo Ezo. oh yeah 
and did not have a title sponsor, and in fact went back to not having a title sponsor not too long after this one. It was tough to verify this because for some reason all of the versions of the openings and endings that I was able to find online are uh, credit-free. I, and some, uh, some of them quite extended. But yeah, it's, I mean, you definitely get the impression that at the very least the producers visited an animal uh, preserve yeah. in Kenya just to observe animal behavior because that seems pretty authentic. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, and they go into a, a lot of things regarding um, in, environmental concerns that were that would have been relevant um, in yeah. Kenya and Africa at that time. Uh, Ryan, mm-hmm. you had some things that you wanted to say about that too? Yeah, and I think it's in episode 15 where they go on a picnic to Lift Valley, I think it's called, and Professor Crenshaw, Crankshaw, whatever, um, says that in, I think, I think I just watched it like a few minutes ago and it said, I think he said in like a billion, a billion years from now it would fill up with water and separate from Africa, which is kind of concerning because currently we're talking about Africa losing its horn, which is like less than 60 years later than his estimate. So that's a little concerning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, with the, with talk the way. Talk climate, about topical. Yeah, with the way climate concerns are, are unraveling, something you'd predict would happen a billion years in the future. Probably like, I don't know, 80 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on the outset, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, it's happening much faster than mm-hmm. we expected. <laughs> mm-hmm. So anyway, the, the turning point of that, uh, first half of the series is, um, is basically the, where the novel starts, which is Jackie finding out that her father, uh, Arthur Rhodes has lost, is lost his job and the family is going to have to move back to England. Um, and a, a lot of focus just in wrapping up that first half is uh, that she has to obtain a permit to bring her uh, beloved bush baby, Murphy, back with her to England. Um, now, in the book, she simply misplaced it. Um, but in the anime, it plays out a little differently. Uh, the permit... Okay, so there's when I was watching this series, there's one character in particular that I was very certain was not in the original book. That character is <laughs> Mickey. Um, so Mickey, Mickey, uh, he's basically this, this fat kid who his entire existence is basically to create artificial, um, um, artificial conflict and slow the story down. Uh, I think there are, there are parts when he's literally like, you know, chasing the character and saying, Hey guys, wait for me. Uh, (laughs) He's he's kind um, of the whole of the problem. I mean, I mean, you get the impression that they created him to give the, uh, you know, the, the, the boy kids watching at home, someone to relate to. And it's, it, it, he is kind of charming in just how transparently smitten with Jackie he is. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, he's kind of, he's a pain, he's a little pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah, and he, he sticks around, oh, and I'll get into it in a second, he, he sticks around in the story much longer than he really should. Um, but yeah, he, there's this scene that didn't really work for me, uh, around that point where he, he steals the permit because he's essentially jealous of, of I, I you know I wasn't really clear on on what his attitude was because he's, yeah. he's jealous that she gets to take Murphy with him, but you don't really get that sense that he was that attached to Murphy in the first half. Yeah, I mean, watching it back, I, it's it's been a few months now since I actually rewatched it, but um, he definitely does have a bit of an attachment to Murphy, and he's intrigued by him from the get go. He wants to see baby Murphy before he you know kicks the bucket, um, but. Yeah, he definitely had a bit of an attachment to him. And then when Jackie and her family go to uh, Mount Kilimanjaro near the end before they go back to England, um, she lets Mickey keep uh, keep Murphy for a little bit. And I guess during that week or wherever that they were gone, he, he developed an attachment to him and, you know, didn't want her to take him back to England. He was hoping that he could keep her around if she didn't get that permit. And so when he found out that she had the permit, it, you know, it dawned on him that, hey, if I take this, maybe she'll let me keep Murphy and 
in the end after all. So it wasn't exactly what I'd call a top ten anime betrayal. Um, but <laughs> I would. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, like I, I can understand someone like acting irrationally and stupid like that, but I don't know that 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 whole thing didn't really kind of work for me. But <laughs> none, nonetheless, that is uh, that is the nature of Mickey in this series for sure. From here on out, the, the anime the anime follows the book fairly closely. As her family is heading to England on a boat, Jackie realizes that she doesn't have the permit. Uh, she leaves the boat uh, trying to search for it, but then the boat leaves her and she is stranded. Shortly after, she's lucky enough to run into Tembo. Um, he's an ex-soldier of the Kamba tribe who worked as a servant and assistant uh, to her father in the, the wildlife preserve um, and remains incredibly loyal to their family. And he tries to assist her in sending a telegraph to their family uh, to send the message. But unfortunately, misunderstandings develop quickly. And that leads police to believe that Tembo has captured the girl and a manhunt begins that forces them to, to take a detour in order to find a place where they can send the message and get everything cleared up. The series, I feel, becomes much more dynamic at this point. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Before Absolutely. this, it's, it's quite stagnant. Um, from here on out, you get uh, more scenes set at night, more interesting use of shadows, more diverse locations. But then, of course, uh, Mickey, for no justifiable reason at all, <laughs> uh, <laughs> he just shows back up and he's like, I'm coming with you guys. And it's like, oh, no. I think he specifically says that he he just wants to go on an adventure with them uh, under the flimsiest pretenses. <laughs> he has to be there to slow the story down, essentially. Yep. So, uh, yeah, at least 40 episodes if Mickey wasn't around. Yeah, exactly, yeah. He would have cleared up very quickly without Mickey. And he he joins, I think the point he joins up with them when when they were hiding out in uh, Arthur Rhodes' family cabin, uh, which in the book Arthur Rhodes apparently refers to as his glory hole. uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, Oh, there's no, there's no apparently, it's stated outright. Yeah. (laughs) I I think the term meant something a little different back in that era. I think that's what's going on there. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, yeah, Mickey meets up with them at that point, uh, and he he goes on the initial part of their journey, but really he's just he's just causing trouble the whole way. Uh, Tembo, he's an interesting character. I I like the scene where he punches a, a snake and eats it. I thought that was pretty fast. <laughs> <badass. laughs> I was gonna say that. I mean, Tembo is an interesting point where the uh, the series diverges a bit from the book, but also sticks close to it. He has a lot in common with the Tembo of the book, but yes. the Tembo of the book, I don't. He wasn't like a rifleman with the Royal army he was just a, a bush tribesman right who worked for uh who worked for uh, her dad and uh and, you know he, he just wore uh wore shorts and a homemade jacket in the uh in the tv anime he wears this uh striking white dashiki for pretty much the entire series <laughs> somehow somehow never gets dirty good for him he seems to be presented as a bit more of just a straight-up eccentric in the anime whereas yeah. in the book it's more i don't want to say He's not an exoticized character or anything like that, but uh, it's it's they they pronounce just his cultural differences between uh, the main, the main characters in a bit of a different way. Whereas in the yeah. anime, it it the way it plays out seems a little a little different, and he also seems a little, he he's more vulnerable uh, in the book mm-hmm. than he seems uh, almost unflappable in the anime at times. So much of the what what happens later is they they make their detour, uh, they have run-ins with the poachers from the first half of the series. Uh, and also have a run-in with a tribe of elephant hunters uh, that results in Mickey getting hit with a poison arrow and getting sick. I don't think he actually contracted any of the poison, but he gets yeah he he gets sick from the encounter. And um, luckily, they run into uh, Professor Crenshaw, who uh, arrives in the Mother Goose. Uh, but he can only fit one other person in the plane, so of course he takes Mickey with him and leaves, and leaves the other two to continue on with the actual meat of the story. 
Um, <laughs> the last the last ten episodes or so is when we get to like the real concentrated kind of highlight of of the book. That's, this is where uh, Crankshaw's plane is another difference that I thought was interesting and disappointed me a little. I understood why they changed it for story reasons to just a conventional biplane because in the book, Cren, you know, Cren, Crankshaw flies a, a sailplane, which is basically just a single-person glider with a small engine, and he specifically uses it because uh, the wingspan is broad enough and the craft is light enough that he can cut the engine and glide in to observe the animals. Yeah. I thought that was kind of a cool right. plot detail, but no, in the, in the TV anime, he just uh, he just has a two-passenger biplane. Yeah. Makes it's things also, a little simpler. It's worth noting his character is quite different in the book as well. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, he's actually he's quite, a completely different character. He is he is quite the racist asshole. He's actually yep. a bit of an antagonist in the second half and the in the in the latter part. Yeah, of the book. he he means yeah. well, but he he's ba- he's very bad at listening to people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In the book, Jackie is actually the one who gets sick and incapacitated, and then uh, Crankshaw finds them, and he assumes the worst of Tenbo, and then he uh, begins pursuing them after that. This is a point in the story where I think Mickey was actually kind of used as a way to diffuse that because his his presence there was able to uh, to cut down on the misconceptions that happened when uh, when Crankshaw met them at that point in the book. Crank, crank, he he continues to be just a, a um, understanding supporting character in 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 the series. Um, and another difference in the in the book between the series is that everyone is just so chill in this in this <laughs> show for the waning days of uh, colonial rule in Kenya. Whereas you feel there's much more, you know, um, tension um, and hostility going on between characters in the book. A lot of that seems mm-hmm. to be kind of uh, ki- kind of downplayed in the anime in a typical 90s way. Um, yeah. yeah. But anyway, at that point, Crenshaw takes Mickey home. Um, the det- and this detour forces uh, Jackie and Tambo to travel uh, through a fire uh, that uh, ignites in the savannah in a, quite a very, uh, th- very thrilling sequence. Oh, yeah. Uh, very yeah. striking mm-hmm. episode, that yeah. one. And they find themselves um, staying in a cabin of a uh, farmer of the Maasai tribe. He has a, who has a very alarmingly threatening entrance in that in that. Entrance. <laughs> it, it's worth pointing out that uh, this this dub is uncut, um, and they, yeah. they he his spear is not covered with actual human blood, but you are definitely supposed to believe Men, that it you're is. You're meant to think that, and it's yeah. this six foot tall dude in a uh, in, in in flowing garments with yeah. bright red uh, dreadlocks. Yeah. <laughs> just just appears in the door of the cabin. That's yeah. a, that's an interesting part. Uh, it's all, that's also another thing where it's a little different. There's one scene from the book that I really wish they had used in the anime, but they uh, they made the Maasai character a little too nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he he was. Also, they, uh, the another major change is that he lived with his mother uh, in the book, but in the anime, he lives with his younger sister. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what so did it's you... another it's another friend for Jackie. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I like I like having a character for Jackie to con- kind of connect with at that point. I don't know if it absolutely it was a you know I, I guess it's kind of a trade off. I don't know if that's the be- the best development in the story at that point in the story really, um, mm-hmm. but it was you know it, it played out well in the anime. I found mm-hmm. um, yeah. also yeah. At that in that same episode where they encounter the Maasai tribesmen. There's there's this great scene I love in that episode where um, Jackie's pointing out that you can see every animal from from the top of the hill where they're at, and she points out there's the hyenas, and it just cuts to this shot of these hyenas just chowing down on a zebra, <laughs> completely yep. covered in blood. I um, do not remember that. Yeah. It, <laughs> oh, there wow, there are a was... number of scenes that are like, did they have to go there? <laughs> yeah. You want to talk about strike? My my favorite scene is early on when uh, you know Jackie and her friends form the little detective corps to try and uh, root out the poachers. Yeah. And at one point, the uh, you know the local man who repairs all the electronics and electrical systems, Dan, she thinks that she suspects that he's involved with the poachers and has this vivid nightmare of him just raising his rifle and shooting Murphy's head off. 
<laughs> this show does not back down in animal violence. Uh, totally uncut. Yeah. Totally uncut. <laughs> yeah. They do not look away. Yeah. From nature. Um, after that, that whole scene, uh, Jackie and Tembo, uh, they force their way through the final stretch, um, through a massive flood. Uh, another very, uh, very great sequence, um, mm-hmm. close to the end of the series that brings them to the rail station at ND. Now, uh, then we, we get to the final sequence where they do make contact with Jackie's family, but there's also a problem where a train is heading, uh, towards that ND station and the station master, I can't remember his, his name. Gideon. He is, yeah, Gideon, yeah. Um, yep. his communication is cut mm-hmm. off and he's unable to, uh, inform a train that's, um, heading towards them that they're going to basically fall in a giant crater that has, or uh, a giant pit that has formed due to the flooding. I mean, I won't get into specifically how it's resolved, but um, the bush baby is able to, to save the day due to his, <laughs> due to his small size and alarming intelligence. Yes. Uh, and uh, this is also something that was very different from the book. Uh, the, the same basic events take place uh, in the book, but much of the tension is more based around the, uh, the manhunt going on for Tenbo. Like they're, they're... Yeah, the authorities still believe that Tenbo has, has kidnapped Jackie and are, uh, are, have been advised to shoot him on sight, and uh, obviously no one wants that to happen, so they need to figure out how to communicate with their pursuers that uh, everything's fine. Yes. Like in the, in the anime, much of the tension going on in the latter part of the series is just, oh, they, they run into the, the poachers, or, uh, or or something like that. Where at the book, it's just like we may rescue Jackie, but Tenbo is gonna he's gonna die. They're gonna kill this guy. Uh, yeah. Reg- like regardless of whether it eventually gets cleared up or not. Um, mm-hmm. The anime doesn't use that as a source of tension, but rather uh, the tension of what's gonna happen to this train if they don't communicate the message across. So what I found interesting, and I think that the way the anime handled this was a bit of an improvement over the book too, because that mm-hmm. train is still coming in the book, and they don't really seem anywhere near as concerned about it. Um, well, there there is a passage in the book where Gideon mentions that he was able to send a letter oh, to okay. advise to advise yeah. oncoming trains. So he's le- he's less concerned about trains plunging into the gorge than he is about just getting yeah. the relief train in, getting the repairs started, and and also preventing them from shooting Tembo on site. Right. Okay. Yeah. It does make for a, a rather thrilling finale uh, in the mm. series that I thought was quite effective. Um, yeah. And then yeah, and, and, um, the series ends with Jackie reunited with her family, but she uh, opts to. Let the bush baby uh, Murphy uh, release the bush baby into the wild, which is uh, actually different from the book. Which is more that's a major reality. divergence, yeah. yeah. Where it follows reality, where the book the bush baby is is t- taken with them to England. I don't know. Do you, do you have any thoughts on on which approach worked better there, Mike? Uh, I, th- I actually prefer the TV anime. I think yeah. it's a uh, I, th- I think it's a nobler idea to connect with this creature, have it as a pet, but eventually realize it wouldn't really be fair to it to take it out of its habitat. Mm-hmm. Especially since she spends much of her journey across Kenya and and her you know her time of uh, of spiritual growth of and during her adventures uh, you know with the mission of returning the bush baby to its native habitat. Yes, it, it felt very strange reading the book too. Just like oh yeah, they get it back to its habitat, but then they find the permit, and she's like, okay, I guess I can take. Is it. that what happens? Oh, that's so weird. <laughs> her mother had the permit all along. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, her, yeah. The permit was in her mom's luggage. She thought oh, well, she had left it, but she was wrong. <laughs> Another thing that they emphasize in the anime is that it is because they arrive at that place at that exact time that they're able to rescue the the passenger train, which, you know, if if they had not 
made it to Indy at that exact point, it very likely would have been destroyed without Murphy there to help deliver the message. And I, I find that kind of funny because this actually means that Mickey is indirectly responsible for saving the lives of hundreds of people because yeah. it is because of him that they <laughs> that they wound up there uh, to, to save mm-hmm. everyone. So that's I guess true. that's one that's way to look at it, but I still, yeah. I still really hate Mickey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, they, they would have been better off if he had never shown up. <laughs> yeah, did you guys have any other thoughts? Any, any other parts of the series really stand out uh, for you, just in general? Um, yeah, I just wanted to touch on one thing. Um, I remember watching this as a kid, not noticing like the segregation and the differences in skin colors and how like people were separated, but watching it back as an adult, it was very apparent how mm. much segregation there was. And it, yeah. it was kind of upsetting because, like, you know, as a kid, you don't notice it, and you're just like, oh, yeah, they're just people, but... As an adult, it's kind of like, yeah, it's, I mean, it's unfortunate that we don't notice skin color until it's presented to us in like a negative light. I will, I will say one thing in appreciation of the dubbed version. They don't try to do any goofy, fake African accents on oh, the they, African but characters. They, they Everyone... give a goofy accent to one character. <laughs> Mr. Morris, who runs the, uh, oh, yeah. the store, <laughs> they just could not resist giving him uh, an Apu accent. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'd kind of forgotten about him, because he's, uh, he's far back enough in the show. Very mi- minor character, just in the earliest episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but um, in general, the, you know, and especially the major characters, they just have neutral speaking voices like everyone else, which is uh, yeah. probably the right choice. I mean, I will point out, too, that the, in the majority of the book, Jackie and Tembo speak to each other in Swahili. Swahili, yeah, yeah. yeah. Really? Huh. Yep. Well, I guess that makes sense, yeah. That'd be cool. The, the, the characters, despite the fact that they... Really, the white characters should have British accents. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, I guess Arthur Roth kind of does, but not. Yeah, that. barely. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, they, they all, all the, basically, all the characters speak with neutral Canadian accents. Yeah. Um, which is quite a contrast to, say, the Anne of Green Gables uh, South African dub, where I don't know what the hell kind of accent they're speaking in that. Um, there, it, it was dubbed in South Africa, like. But they're not trying to sound Canadian. It's like I don't yeah. think they were. Sh- I don't think they were quite sure how Canadians at that point of time sounded. I and mean, the, it's the episodes. I've, I've I haven't seen too much of it, but they just sound South African to me. I mean, I've I've been there. Uh, I've been to a number of cities okay. in South Africa, and that's how the folks talk. Okay, well that yeah. makes sense then. I've, um, I've been I've been to Kenya too. I was really? there for a total of like six hours, and I didn't leave the airport. I'm an expert. Now. <laughs> Um, what was the airport like? <laughs> fairly, fairly small and very crowded because this was uh, in the run-up to the World Cup in 2010. It was, uh, it was, it was a fun place to be. Everyone was going somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, let's talk more about the dub. Uh, it's worth emphasizing that there are no voice credits at all uh, in the in the ending credit sequence, which is very frustrating. Uh, Infuriating. Yeah, we we don't <laughs> we don't know technically who played everyone uh this dub was produced by Cineloom in montreal um so the cast is actually very recognizable if you've ever seen an episode of arthur um (laughs) you in fact i think just about every major voice actor shows up in arthur at one point so if you cross reference it with episodes of arthur you should be able to identify everyone I need to circle back. I've seen episodes of Arthur because uh, that show was created here and takes place one town over from my hometown. So that's uh, yep. that's real local product for me. But yeah, yeah, I, I totally recognize some of those voices. The TV show production is like all CanCon, baby. Yep, that's um, right. <laughs> most recognizable, uh, Jackie's brother Andrew is played by uh, Daniel Brochu, who's Buster from Arthur. And um, Professor Crankshaw, Crenshaw... Uh, he's played by the late Walter Macy. He played the the principal yeah. in Arthur, but he also he he is in a a lion's share of uh, of CanCon 
productions, both animated and live action. Uh, he's perfect. He he is Inspector Ganimard in Knighthood, which is the mm-hmm. uh, the French produced Lupin the First uh, cartoon, which YTV and Teletoon ran into the ground back in the day. I don't know if it even aired in the states. It did not. It did not. I'm a big fan of it. I'm a big uh, fan of LeBlanc's uh, Arsène Lupin, so I saw most of that series, and, and I don't think that thing has never really made it to DVD a- anywhere in the world, which is kind of irritating. Yeah, Discotech has to get on that one. Um, yeah, we should. We yeah. should. Yeah, I, I watched that show as a kid. The actual animation in the episodes is a startling contrast from the beautifully animated uh, opening sequence. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, that opening uh, really reels you in. It's so good. I, I, yeah. I still watch that opening all the time. It's such, such a great opening. Uh, but anyway, yeah, he was in he was in that. He was also in the, the live-action Lassie remake uh, from the mid-'90s. It aired on YTV. I assume it aired on, like, some... Mm-hmm. Nick spinoff or something in the states. I'm, I'm sure it was it was uh, it was in like deep uh, you know UHF uh, you know just broadcast TV syndication. Oh okay. So, like so. like one of the terrestrial channels would run it on Saturday afternoons. Yeah. But yeah, we absolutely got that though. Also, um, apparently Walter Macy played Papa Panda in a long lost Montreal dub of Panda Go Panda. At least to some, according to some random person in the Anime News Network boards that I well they they have remarkably detailed information and I've reached out to them to try and oh, get okay. a copy of that. So I uh, haven't heard back. I also reached out to Cineluma to see if they had any information or materials about this uh, this dub, but I never heard from them either. Yeah. Um, production houses, like the production houses who work on stuff like this, who are still in business, tend to have these materials. Uh, okay. you know, we, we, Discotech has done a lot of work with Ocean, and more often than not, they've had uh, uncompressed audio masters for us nice. to use. It's only in a couple of cases that they uh, can't seem to find the tapes. Like, the thing to remember about Cineloom uh, is that they are massive. Um, yeah. They are a massive company. They do. Oh yeah, they do Hollywood more. movies for. Uh, oh, in, that's in what French they, That's for, their bread and butter. That's, yeah, they do Hollywood movies in yeah. French for both Quebec and for the rest of the French-speaking world yes. too. So that's yeah. a lot of business. So I mean, you can you can definitely see how some you know, English language animation productions that they did in the '90s would fall through the cracks. Yeah. Or, or I yeah. guess in the case of Panago Panda much earlier. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, um, so I believe it, who is who plays Jackie? Uh, is it Pauline Little? Yeah, I, I think that was that, uh, that, that's that's what was credited. I would need to double check. I didn't uh, I didn't include that in my notes. Yeah, I, th- I think that's my, she's the voice of Maya the Bee in the the, the Montreal dub of Maya the Bee. Oh, okay. I think that's her. I I I've actually found that that uh, that Jackie was the weakest link uh, in the dub overall. Um, she's not bad, but uh, I think a lot of a lot of the other characters have um, have stronger performances. I got I got used to her voice. I thought it was yeah. uh, it was good. I have a few more thoughts, but Rania, did you have something to say? Yeah, Rania, you're the, you're the one with the nostalgia <laughs> for the show, so I think the I'm savior just... of the dubbed version. Yes. yes, I'm just happy that other people get to watch it now. Like, yeah. imagine if I don't even know how to describe this. Like, imagine if Game of Thrones was not as big as it was, and you're the only one who's watched it, and you need to talk <laughs> to people about it, and no one's seen it. Like, I'm just so happy that people are enjoying it, and it's available online now. So, yeah. <laughs> for the dub specifically, like, uh, how, how does it hold up from um, from when from I was a kid. How, how you remember, like just 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 the voices uh, from from when you watched it as a kid. Oh man, they're just so nostalgic. Like mm-hmm. I I didn't think much of like I don't know when I was watching Bush Baby. It was my first anime, so I didn't really have anything else to compare it to. But rewatching it now, like some of the voices are a little bit you know annoying at times. But uh, yeah, it, it, it's a very it's a very public TV kind of dub. I was going to say I am a big fan of uh, how you know goofy and a bit ham fisted the song adaptations are. I was going to get into that. Let's talk about those theme songs. Oh, um, my God. I, I thought I was certain when I first saw that dub that it was just like, these have to be newly created theme songs. These nope. can't be the Japanese theme songs. 
But as it turns out, yeah, they're, they uh, they're, yeah, they're adaptations. Yeah, they're, they are adaptations of the Japanese theme song for both the first opening and the, the ending. The second opening, uh, did not make it through. What, what I found, fu- I found funny is that their, their opening cover, uh, or their, their opening song, which is adapted from Apollo, the original opening, it just mm-hmm. has these super on the nose lyrics for what you're actually seeing on the screen in the, the opening. Oh, yeah. The, the way they do it, they, it uses the original animation for the opening. Um, they, mm-hmm. the song is, is an adaptation. Um, it, it sounds like the vocalist was just given a synopsis for the series, and then he watched the <laughs> opening and improvised lyrics. Improvised yeah. lyrics like on the, the spot. Totally, like, yeah. he got, he got the melody, and then he just started filling in the blanks as he yeah. was watching it scroll by. Yeah. My yeah. favorite line talks about how life is normal as can be. That just, that just infects my brain, so when I watch the series now, I just sing along. From Great Britain, they came to Africa to care for animals and have a normal life. The kids are normal, with lots of normal friends, and learn to love this extremely normal land. (laughs) But yeah, the the original uh, compositions, uh, the singers were different, but they were composed by a guy named Shinji Tanimura, who is a... Big deal folk singer and uh, folk lyricist in the 70s. He had like an entire folk collective, like a traveling Wilburys of Japanese folk in the 70s called Alice. So he was, uh, he's, he's kind of a actually pretty famous dude in, uh, in Japanese music. I thought that was interesting. But yeah, it's, it's like even in the original Japanese, it's this really intense brooding opening. Yeah. Like I, I love how it, the Japanese version ends on like the lyric where it's, it, uh, it was just Apollo, Apollo. Yeah. Apollo. Uh, it's like, they could have like I don't understand why they couldn't just keep that part in the in, in the opening. They, they go with like because she's standing in front of the sun, so just like in the sun, in the sun, like uh, <laughs> just hangs in the air. It's brilliant. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, the the ending is a like I said, it's a is an adaptation of the original ending songs. It doesn't have the visuals of the uh, the Japanese ending though. The original Japanese ending has these kind of cute pastel drawings that I really like, but the English one just uses screenshots from the show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which is unfortunate. I guess I guess a textless version wasn't available uh, for the mm. ending. That's the, that's the only explanation I can think of for that. It's funny because that ending starts with a shot of uh, Murphy from one of the first couple of episodes when he's just like this little uh, this little lump, um, this little brown lump of uh, of whatever a bush baby is. Um, and, and it's a contrast to how he looks later in the series. He that that he gets progressively cuter as as things go on for sure, which I guess is a necessity for when you have a long-running series like that. <laughs> so refresh my memory, Rania, when did this air? What time? What day? Was it on the weekends? Was it a weekday thing? Um, yeah, so, I mean, again, I didn't record it. It was my parents, but according to them, it was it aired Monday to Friday. I'm not sure what time, probably in the afternoon sometime. And then uh, Saturday and Sunday was also airing at a different time at a different part of the series. So it was, okay. it was going all week, I think. So, yeah. That's interesting. So, so if you had a gap of episodes, you could double back uh, on the weekend showings and get caught mm-hmm. up. Yeah. How long did they run it for? Oh gosh, I don't know. I think probably two or three years. I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I mean, she definitely did. Like when my mom was recording it, she missed a few episodes here and there and had to wait like a year for it to come back around sometimes. So, and she did manage to get all of them. So I imagine that, like at least a few years. So. Wow, that 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 diligence really paid off. Yeah, there's a lot of dedication that she put into this. Yeah, yeah, that's quite impressive. Yeah. <laughs> so on Access Alberta, there was also the Jungle Book anime, which I think I mentioned before. Um, mm-hmm. you guys anyway, but uh, 
we do also have it on VHS. My mom put in the same amount of dedication for that, although the quality is not quite as good. It's more staticky from what I remember. Yeah, um, the Jungle Book anime was released on DVD in North America. Oh, was it? Okay. I, th- I, think, I think by Shout Factory, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and, and comparing the two, like, I always preferred Bush Baby as a kid, but rewatching Jungle Book, it's very, very cheesy and that the writing's not so good in some parts. Like, the dialogue's really weird and awkward in some scenes, whereas Bush Baby, I think, mm-hmm. holds up a little bit better. So that, that has me scrambling to check. Was that Jungle Book uh, also dubbed in Canada? Uh, I think so. I, I don't know. I believe it was. I'm I think not 100% the same sure production company. Jungle Book, Shonen Mowgli. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, that, that was also a Nippon Animation show. And Nippon Animation also did, like, a young uh, Robin Hood show that was dubbed by the same crew, and it's very amusing. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's just this very, it has a very wry, weird sense of humor to it, and uh, the, the dubbers do a good version, lat, a good job of latching onto it and preserving it. Mike, I'm curious, do you have any yeah. speculation yourself as to how TVO may have wound up, pro- like, getting the rights and producing this dub? I would venture that, uh, they, you know, I, I don't think this was a money up front deal. I think they, uh, what probably happened is that uh, Nippon Animation brokered a deal with Cineluma to, uh, to to get it dubbed into English. And once TVO saw this thing, that was like, okay, here's a here's a 40-episode cartoon in English, and it's CanCon, so let's kick it some money. Based on a, on Canadian literature. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was going to say, that's, that, that should absolutely qualify as, as for the Canadian content rule, right? Because it's based oh. on, on Canadian literature, and it was yeah. uh, produced in Canada. The credits say that Turner Broadcasting was involved in this somehow. I have can't even begin to speculate on what role they could have played in this. It's it's possible that they were they were a go between that they were involved in the in the negotiation somewhere or they have a master North American license that they just didn't bother exercising in the in the US. Turner uh, you know the, the Turner people were also involved in the dubbed version of Ninja Robots uh, Toby Kage which that was dubbed in Miami and never shown in the US. It was only shown in Latin America and Southeast Asia, but Turner has it. For some reason, Turner Turner produced it for television. So, so yeah, there's 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 some weird cases of uh, of, of you know these big uh, global production companies getting involved in places you wouldn't expect them to. But again, that's that's speculation. I think it's unlikely we'll ever know the full story. But at least we have it. That's the most important thing. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And as someone who works, you know kind of indirectly via discotheque with uh, with licensing agents for this stuff overseas, the fact that a complete record of this dub now exists opens the door for it possibly coming out on home video or streaming somewhere officially down the line. That'd be mm-hmm. great. Well, I know that somebody, someone commented on one of the videos uh, a week ago saying that they were taking all of the HD Japanese episodes and then just sticking the audio for my episodes. Oh, yeah. Them. yeah. If, if making... nothing else, if nothing yeah, else, fan, fans that. will create their own version. Totally. But, but seeing something, I mean, seeing something like this uh, would, I've seen, I've seen cases where you, you know, the licensor is like, well, we don't have an English version. And then you show them the English version and they're like, <laughs> wait a minute, we'll check again. And it turns out <laughs> yeah. they have masters of it. And they had it all along and just, mm-hmm. they, they assumed they didn't. In that sense, it's very valuable that this has been unearthed. I think it's pretty cool. I, and, actually, and, on uh, that I'm note. excited. Mm-hmm. Mike, what do you think the actual prospects of seeing more World Masterpiece Theater stuff getting North American home video releases or streaming releases? I've yes. gone to the licensing shows in Japan, and these are these are on the sales block. Nippon Animation is trying to sell them internationally. I have to assume that that what they're asking in terms of money is still too high for for what the North American publishers are used to paying. Because I mean, there there are several of these shows that are well regarded worldwide that have dubbed versions. And for some reason, we're not seeing it. And like I said, just like I know Nippon Animation is trying to sell them overseas, 
to get that sweet licensing money, but uh, for whatever reason, a deal hasn't been reached yet. I have a feeling it's going to be like a lot of the the TMS stuff, including the Loop on the Third shows, where all that needs to happen is something, you know, someone needs to take a chance on something, pay a little bit more than usual, and if it does well, Nippon Animation are going to be like, well, we'll nudge our prices downward and get this stuff out there. They'll, they'll, see, they'll see the potential there. Given the status of a lot of uh, World Masterpiece Theater titles, I'm not, I'm not sure if the the Bush Baby would be the best uh, candidate for that, but it'd be great to see it get some kind well, of I mean, eventually, yeah. For me, the Bush Baby, the, the issue there would be you wouldn't just have to deal with Nippon Animation. Since the book isn't that old, you'd also have yeah. to deal with the author's estate. Uh, and that might be very that might be very easy to do, but who knows? It could be yeah. very difficult. Speaking of which, I should probably mention I, I found the book. What I had to do to get the book is there was precisely one copy available in all of um, British Columbia. It was in the Vancouver Public Library, and it was held in their Canadiana section. So they wouldn't let me took, take it out. I had to go there and I had to photograph the whole thing and then read it later. Jesse, how long did it take you to do that? <laughs> oh, an uh, hour and a half. <laughs> oh my gosh. It wasn't. It wasn't that long. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I looked at it just like so. This probably didn't take freakishly long to do, but probably kind of annoyingly long. Yeah, this, yeah, for the for the listeners, this guy got this book, took a cell phone photo of every single page, and stitched them into a PDF. And that's how I read. That's how I read it too, because uh, none of the libraries in New England uh, seem to have a copy. Yeah, this has been out of print for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, I, I actually I did check Amazon. I think there is a there are a couple of used copies floating around. Most of them are going for over eighty dollars. There mm-hmm. is one version, I think one used version I saw that's going for around under twenty. But it's apparently it's all marked up with notes. But if you want your very own copy of the Bush Baby, you you can get one. You just have to be willing to pay for it uh, more than I was. And that's that's another very weird and very mm-hmm. common phenomenon with these anime adaptations of Western books. Like uh, Miyazaki's Future Boy Conan is based on an Alexander Key novel, uh, the writer of Escape from Witch Mountain, uh, called The Incredible Tide. You can't get that book anymore either, not for love or money. Uh, there are ways to read it online it's been pirated widely but, but you can't like officially get it and haven't been able to for decades mm-hmm. but, uh, that's really interesting to me yeah for any for any people listening in alberta anyway the calgary library does have one copy of it and there's also a website you can go to uh talonline.ca and you can have books from any alberta library sent to your library so if you want to read it you can get it sent to library. yeah i i'm i don't know if you if you checked into it it's probably a similar situation to the vancouver Mm. library where they won't let you check it out they probably oh yeah it says here it's your in your warehouse storage library. never mind that's unfortunate well disregard it yeah i said if you can get to a library to check it out um mm-hmm. i mean you can you can you can you can read it or or photograph it they will they will explicitly allow you to photograph it so mm-hmm. as long yeah. as for i well i told them it was for research purposes which it was so yes. <laughs> yeah. technically true um, and I, I will also say that I, uh, I quite liked the book. I thought the prose was very evocative. It, uh, it wasn't too simplistic. Yeah. I think there's certainly um, uh, some content in the book that is just like, well, it, it doesn't shy away from depicting the white savior complex in Africa in the period as, as, as bad, but it tries to apologize for it and justify it a little. Yeah. Which is, you know, which hasn't aged that well, but I mean, there was an, ent- there was an entire genre of young adult novels like this in the mid 20th century and uh but you don't see them as often anymore and so in that in that respect I thought it was really cool uh it reminded me a little bit of another book called Flight of the White Wolf by Mel Ellis which uh that that was like uh that took place on the you know the story took place on the border of the US and Canada so that's it's close to being Canadian content and that also got turned into a TV anime another thing I wanted to mention uh, is also Jackie's dad 
Um, I find it kind of funny because when you remember that William Stevenson wrote this story about his daughter, so the character of Arthur Rhodes is essentially his own self-insert yeah. in the story, and he is that has to be a pastiche of him. Yeah, he, he is very. I, I thought I thought he was very much a Mary Sue, and when I say Mary <laughs> Sue, I mean like what that term originally referred to, which is a an idealized self-insert of yourself, because it, yeah. you know he really comes off as being like you know no, no one respects the Africans like like Arthur Rhodes does or. <laughs> That's right. That's uh, right. And the, the book especially paints him in contrast to uh, to to Crankshaw in that regard as well. Yeah. One big thing that was excised from the book um, was discussion of Jackie's grandfather, uh, John Laxman, who heroically um, hunted Arab slave traders, which ar- arose after kind of the, the the end of the transatlantic slave trade, which they, they touch on a little bit in the show. Um, they go into more mm-hmm. detail into that in the book. But uh, yeah, it, that's a def- that's a definite quirk of the book is is how it approaches the, the white savior complex, for sure. And I, I, I just found it funny the way... Um, <laughs> The way William Stevenson sort of de- depicts Arthur Rhodes within that whole kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one other thing, too, actually, is when I first found out about how much demand there was for this, it was on Reddit. Someone had posted about it, and it actually got a lot of upvotes. It was from William Stevenson's granddaughter saying yeah. that. Yeah, yeah did you I guys read see that, that thread. Yep, yeah. sure did. Yeah, my aunt became anime, <laughs> but, <laughs> but now the dub is out of print. Mm-hmm. That was a really interesting uh, thing to pop up on Reddit. That's yeah. actually what brought my attention to this originally. People or someone, someone that showed I me that thread. I'm just mm-hmm. like, wow, that's a that's an interesting situation. Also, yeah. I've never heard of the Bush Baby before. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, that that thread made me was what made me believe there has to be a dub out there somewhere, just because family members of the actual author are like, no, this is real. We've seen it. We just can't find it now. Yeah, so, just looking into other differences that were in the book uh and you have to remember those differences were introduced by uh, miyazaki himself i am of course referring to akira miyazaki why who yes. did you think i was talking about <laughs> but akira miyazaki was uh, kind of the other miyazaki at nippon animation uh he actually worked on uh we worked on a couple of projects with hayao miyazaki he ended up writing a uh, a movie called like the clouds like the wind that is kind of permanently mistaken for a studio ghibli movie because the animation director and designer was uh, katsuya kondo who also yeah. works at studio ghibli that was perpetuated heavily in the fan sub oh <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah yeah the fan sub circulation so circulators were like that name is miyazaki we uh discotech released that on blu-ray recently and i really wanted to put a tag on the front that just said in huge letters, you know, Studio Ghibli, and then underneath it is, you think this is from Studio Ghibli. (laughs) I I guess it's also worth pointing, one thing to also point out is that um, in the book, the Bush Baby has a different name. It's Kamau instead Mm -hmm. of Murphy. I'm not sure why they made the decision to change that. It may have just been a pronunciation thingy. Um, Also, Kamau says uh, in perhaps the part of the book that has aged the least well, uh, the Bush baby always says keck keck, um, which is a little <laughs> unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, well, the thing is, what occurs to me is like maybe it was uh, because Murphy is cuter or pronunciation thing, but also Kamau uses Japanese phonemes. I wonder if Kamau is a not nice word in Japanese. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It could be, it could be interpreted in a, in a negative way in Japan. I'm not yeah. sure. The the book is called The Bush Babies uh, rather than The Bush Baby. I don't know why that is, because there is only one Bush Baby. In fact, there are fewer Bush Babies in the uh, the book than there are in the series. There's only one. Yeah. I don't know why it is. I was waiting for the book to have some kind of line like, after all their travels, it turns out that she, too, was a Bush Baby, but that never happened. Um, <laughs> and yeah, uh, I guess kind of the last thing I wanted to bring up is that, as far as I can tell, 
the one thing that really makes the Bush Baby stand out as an anime is that I think this may be the only ever the only anime ever made that features a well-researched version of a sub-Saharan African country. Um, that's really not well. It's not not material you see in media in general very often, especially not in anime. Mm. Um, I don't know. I guess Mike, did you have any any thoughts on that? I mean, I looked into that a little, and yeah, you, you, there is an anime called Kenya Boy, but that that it's that's a that's a lurid cult movie that has nothing to do with reality whatsoever. Yeah, the title the um, title doesn't inspire a lot of faith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, in in general, it's uh, I'm I'm not thinking. Uh, there's not a lot that comes to mind. Like you talk about anime that takes place in Africa, and all I can think is Walt JoJo's Bizarre Adventure takes place yeah. in Egypt, but that's that's Northern Africa. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it's a well-researched version of Cairo in, mm-hmm. in that yeah. show too. But but no, uh, but yeah. but yeah, no, no West Africa, no Central Africa, no South Africa. Specifically, I think just like we we've had anime that takes place all over the world. Why not South Africa? Because uh, go going there in 2010 was an eye-opening experience. Uh, mm. In a lot of ways, South South Africa is uh, is a very highly developed country, like any other very very highly developed country. Um, mm-hmm. People look down on it because it's in Africa, but no, I, I felt very comfortable in Johannesburg, and I thought it was a cool place. They should set a super robot anime in Johannesburg. That's what I think. <laughs> I support this. Yeah, I think, like I kind of touched on earlier, I think that may have been the whole purpose of this project was to just present a well-researched version of an African country, which is just not something you see in anime, and that's that's kind of like that's kind of one of the things that makes World Masterpiece Theater stand out is that they kind of have that that underlying objective with a lot of projects of exploring different cultures in different parts of the world, different parts of the world, and displaying them authentically in a way that a Japanese audience is going to be very receptive to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, and that was uh, that was something that, uh, that that Takahata insisted on, um, specifically after the Dog of Flanders show, which was not quite Belgian enough to impress actual Belgian people. Yeah, be- be- people people in Belgium are not generally impressed with the Dog of Flanders. Well, the story was never that well known, and yeah. the the, ca- the characters and settings look a little too Dutch. <laughs> yeah. Actually, actually, a lot of the staff who worked on uh, the Bush Babies worked on a 90s version of the Dog of Flanders that is a little more authentic, and that did air on Belgian TV. But yeah, that's that's one of those central missions of World Masterpiece Theater, and I think it's too bad that there hasn't been any World Masterpiece Theater anime for some time, uh, over 10 years at this point. I think the last one was the, the Les Miserables uh, Cosette series, which was early 2000s. They did before Green Gables. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah, and prequel set in New Brunswick yeah. uh, and heavily sponsored by uh, Canadian tourism organizations. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, at the same time, it's like before Green Gables, like, oh, this is going to answer all the burning questions that I had about, about, <laughs> about Anne's life before she came to Green Gables. <laughs> all right. Uh, that's all I had. Did anyone else have any other thoughts? Ronnie, did you have uh, anything else you wanted to add about the show? Uh, nothing else to add, but um, for anyone that's still watching it or in the process of watching it or planning to watch it um leave me comments on my youtube videos like i want to know what people think of this i'd love to be able to finally talk to people about it so i don't think we mentioned the episodes are all on youtube um Mm -hmm. as of this recording they're still there i don't think there's a strong chance they're going to get taken down yeah Um, it is possible if you if you get a chance to see them i'd say download them just so you have them i don't i don't think they're going to get taken down i got a notification that whichever Japanese studio does has claimed it as their work, but they're just letting me keep them up anyway. So I don't. Okay, know. good. So so yeah. so they're t- they're taking a monetization stream, but they're not interfering. That's that's yeah. good. That's for the best. Yeah. I like yeah. that. Um, yeah, I would say that uh, you know, in general, I try to shy away from endorsing uh, piracy because it's it's a big problem in in the anime and manga business. At, but for a series like this, 
piracy equals preservation. So you should watch it. (laughs) Well, you can watch it. And actually, no, I think it's I think it's cool that uh, Nippon Animation just put a claim on it, a monetization claim on it, and are, and are getting some ad money from it. That kind of legitimizes it. I noticed you, Ron, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, ho- I hope they keep an eye on uh, on what kind of revenue they get from it, and a uh, light bulb goes off above their head, and maybe mm-hmm. we can see more of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Could be a potential opportunity. Yeah. Okay, well, I think that pretty much wraps us up. Rania, if, is it okay if you if you want to advertise your social media, or where can people find you online? Um, yeah, sure. So I'm on Twitter at underscore serenade me underscore, or I'm also on my anime list at uh, my username on there is just Talon, like the Soul Calibur character. So <laughs> that's where I can be found. And Mike, uh, where, mm-hmm. where where can people find you? Uh, well, I do have a bi-weekly column uh, on uh, Anime News Network. It's kind of irregularly bi-weekly lately because I've had other projects uh, called The Mike Tool Show. Uh, I also do occasional reviews, features, and interviews there at AnimeNewsNetwork.com. Uh, you can also find me uh, producing extras and occasional other content for Discotech Media. Uh, my latest project is the high-flying 80s OVA, Area 88. Uh, I've made a bunch of new liner notes for that, and that should be coming out, I think, in December or January, so pretty soon. Keep an eye out for it. And uh, pick up Banania on, on Blu-ray as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the, the only Blu-ray release of Banania in the world, of the world's most important anime about a kitty who lives in a banana. That's and a weird show. <laughs> it's a wonderful show. Am I your social yeah. social media? Oh, on social media, yeah. My platform is Twitter. You can find me at Michael Tool, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-T-O-O-L-E. And uh, thank you for tuning in to Zon in Canada. You can reach me on Twitter at jbetteridge or email zonincanada at gmail.com. The theme song is by Ultra Klystron. You can find it on his album Packet Flood uh, at ultraklystron.com. Uh, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or your podcast app of choice, and leave a rating or review if you have a chance. It really helps with the visibility of this show, especially on Apple Podcasts. Uh, if you know anyone who might like this show, please recommend it to them. See you again. Another shining example of how Canada loves anime, but anime doesn't (laughs) love Canada back.